Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, read a book, show up for a friend. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash 365 today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash 365. This is 365 Sports, powered by Sikkim365.com. Dale Hansen, Hall of Fame broadcaster, has been retired for quite some time, but uh, man, in the middle of some of the monstrous stories, in fact, the SMU scandal uh, unloaded on that one, and then even the 25th of 1987, Feb 25th, 1987, the SMU, and even two years later, Landry was fired on the same actual date, but in 1989. Dale Hansen joins Craig and Paul, David Smog. Hey, how is retirement? It's good. Um, it, it took me, in all seriousness, uh, it, it took me a couple of months to make the adjustment, but um, uh, it's good. I like getting up in the morning with nothing to do all day, and I do it incredibly well. So uh, it, it worked out just fine. Dale, with the way college football is and how it's changed with NIL and the transfer portal in uh, the last three to four yeah. years, and then you look at this date in 1987, it's not the 50th, but it, it pops up on my calendar every year. The changes we now see in the game that put SMU under? Well, what, what put SMU uh, under the death penalty is exactly what they've now legalized. Yep. I mean, it's not the first time that they've done that. I mean, you know, we, we used to have prohibition in this country, and, uh, you know, people were being jailed for selling beer. Now it's one of the biggest advertising markets going. So uh, I guess maybe, uh, although I don't think SMU finds any satisfaction or solace in that, but yeah, what they're doing now is exactly uh, what we uh, criticized and and, uh, and punished SMU for doing, and other schools, obviously, uh, back in the 80s. But I hate it. I, I think there was an absolute necessity to find a middle ground uh, to make it fair to everybody. Uh, you know, coaches are able to leave uh, at the drop of a hat. Why shouldn't a player be allowed to leave? Um, pl- coaches make a ton of money. Schools make a ton of money in football in particular, basketball now as well. Why shouldn't they get some of the money? Uh, but, but I just think it's, I think it's obscene and I think it's ridiculous um, 
the system that they're trying to play under now. And I, I, I don't like it at all. I really don't. Dale, how is your uh, position when you were reporting, like your per- personal opinion on it, when you're reporting on it in 1987 uh, to now with all the things that have changed, just how you felt about a team like SMU doing what they were doing and then now to see it, like, you know, they're doing things now that the SMU guys never even dreamed of. Well, that, that's true. But, but you know, people said this to me back in 87, and I said, you know, I, I'm not the one that makes up the rules. I said, if you don't like the rules, change them. I'm just trying to make sure that it's fair, as as you have agreed to play by. Um, and now, now they've obviously changed them. But I don't have any regrets. I don't have any um, any qualms at all about what we did in '87 because SMU was was cheating like crazy. And uh, I, I realize it's a bit of an extreme, but I, I do find it funny that a lot of people. I, I mean, I hear this. I very seldom get through two to three weeks without somebody mentioning uh, the SMU story to me. Um, but I, I find it somewhat funny that people look at me now and they go, well, don't you feel bad about, about what you did to SMU? And I said, well, one, I didn't do anything. They did it to themselves. And two, it'd be like asking Elliot Ness, don't you feel bad for breaking down all those beer distributors? Uh, it, you know, they changed the rules. You know, there were rules that you couldn't drink beer. They changed them. There were rules that you couldn't cheat and buy players. They changed them. Uh, and, again, I'm okay with both. Um, but I just wish they – I think there's a middle ground that I think we've ignored. And I, I think they have to find that or I think the game's going to be in trouble. Dale, did you have any idea of how big that story was going to be? Like, when did it dawn on you? Was it right away when you started to kind of get a sense of what was going on or – down the line as it was coming together, did you start to sense? Like, when did it hit you of just how big this story was going to be? Well, actually, it, it, it really smacked me in the face on, on that February day when we were sitting at, at uh, SMU when they announced the death penalty. But, no, I, I knew it was big. Uh, I knew we had a, a, a really, really big story. Uh, I didn't believe it in the beginning because I didn't think SMU could be that stupid. Um and, and yet it obviously turned out to be true. But um, when we were really in the middle of it, I think we just kind of like, okay, this is the job. This is actually kind of fun. People always get uh, get offended when I say that. I don't mean fun in, in terms of enjoying it. I just mean, and you, you know this, David, it, it's just the excitement of the job. It's just the excitement of the chase, if you will. Um, I didn't find any great enjoyment in that story, but it was at the same time as contradictory as this may be. It was actually kind of fun, uh, uh, but but I think it, it. We knew it was big. It became bigger, and then obviously on that February day in, in uh, '87 when they slapped him with that death penalty, um, I, I remember sitting in that room and it just it just hit me in the face that. So I didn't think that was going to happen. Quite honestly, Dale, I I, I, I didn't. No, I, I thought if anybody was going to get the death penalty, it should have been SMU. But I didn't think I didn't think they would ever do it. You were never a social media guy, and it wasn't available back in those days. Can you imagine what would have been like then? Uh-oh. Oh, it would have been horrible. I'm not. I'm not a social media guy now, um, <laughs> which is another one of the reasons I'm out of the business. I, I think you have to be uh, active in social media if you're going to be any kind of a broadcaster now. And it's one of the reasons I, I, I'm kind of glad I'm out. Um, oh, but if we'd have had social media back then, oh, my goodness gracious. Um, I got enough death threats as it was. Think what my life would have been like if I'd have had to deal with all the stuff on Twitter and 
mm. people spreading the, the messages and throwing my phone numbers and my address out there. I mean, I think you remember the story, David. We lived in the country. We, we thought we had a certain amount of privacy. Um, and, you know, and they delivered threatening letters and stuffed them in our mailboxes. And uh, we had one lady knocked on our door when we had a gate and a, a pasture, you know, that they walked all the way through the pasture. Uh, to get to our house. I mean, it was um, it was a scary time for my wife, especially. I mean, she she was very scared. I mean, legitimately scared. Um, I, I I just kind of rolled with it, quite honestly. I, I I've always felt that nobody's really going to kill you if they bother to send you a message first. I'm I'm more I'm more worried about the guy who just shoots me when I'm walking down the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. I never, I never got too bothered by the, um, you know, by, I mean, hundreds of death threats. Uh, but I, I swear to you, those, those never really bothered me. Because uh, I, I figured nobody's really that stupid. And thankfully, they weren't, I guess. Um, but, but, you know, I had a black bird delivered to my office. A huge, like a crow or something, a huge black bird. The neck was just mangled. And then stuffed into the, the bird's chest with, a, with a, like a staple or a, a nail was the note, hey, Hanson, you're next. Now, that one was a little scary. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it, it was crazy. I mean, it was crazy. You know, the other point about those, this is what drives me nuts. I, 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 I've never been too concerned about paying players. I, think it's, I, I don't think it's really necessary in my own personal opinion, but okay, fine. But I had Troy Aikman on a podcast uh, about a year or so ago and, and I asked this question. I said, Troy, you think high school kids should be paid? And he goes, well, I never thought about it. I said, well, why not? I said, you know, the, the coaches are making a lot of money. They sell tickets. They broadcast the games. I think these high school kids should be paid. He goes, well, I think maybe you're right. I said, how about the Little League World Series? Should we be paying those 12-year-old kids? Because Williamsport makes a lot of money. ESPN makes a lot of money. The hotels and restaurants in Williamsport make a lot of money. I think maybe we should pay those 12-year-old kids. And I swear to you, thinking that Aikman would laugh at the absurdity of that, <laughs> Aikman says, actually, I think you have a point. Hmm. And, and I thought, yeah, let's do that. Let's pay 12-year-old kids to play baseball. That's what they need. That, how has this country managed to survive without paying 12-year-old kids to play baseball? And I think that's where we're headed. I, 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 I really do. I, because at the same time, if, if you think, if you really do believe that a college athlete is not compensated with free education, free room and board, and basically an internship to prepare for their future, if that's not enough, and obviously it's not, then why aren't we paying 12-year-old kids to play baseball in Williamsport? And I just, I think that's really stupid myself, but that's why I'm retired and I'm 75 years old telling people to get off my grass, I guess. <laughs> Dale, do you ever, I mean, the, the NCAA has spent countless millions of dollars trying to fight all these suits, and they've, they've lost another one on, on Friday that, that to me appears to probably be their, the, the end of it. Like, they, I don't know if they can really come yeah, back from yeah. that one. Um, but had they just given these athletes in 1996 when it started to be kind of get hot about it then, like $2,200 a month, you know, escal- yep, yep. escalating, like we wouldn't be here now. It's, it's kind of silly. Well, you're not you're not ever going to get me to defend the NCAA, and I'm not, uh, not in any fashion. But 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 again, I think your point is exactly dead on. 
we we never wanted to find the common sense middle of the road approach. They they just never did. Um, the the NCAA is, is is that dictatorship that everybody's concerned about in America today and, and around the world for that matter. That that when you refuse to compromise, when you refuse to find the middle ground, you just end up in a ditch somewhere. You just absolutely destroy everything that's good. I think the NCAA deserves most of the blame for that because as you point out and, and i certainly have always agreed with yeah there, there should have been a little more money for these athletes i should it be a million five? Oh, guys i don't know i we could also argue about that but but when the ncaa just basically tries to fight everything they, they try they to me they come off as this dictatorship and and they're so arbitrary with the rules i mean the you ever think an Alabama's going to get the death penalty? I mean, that, that would never happen. Ohio State, Michigan, uh, without question, they took advantage of SMU by giving them the death penalty, hoping that it would scare the other institutions into falling into line. Um, I, no, I think the NCAA is a horrible argument, and you make a great point that had they just sat down with all the interested parties and tried to find a compromised middle ground, we'd all be better off. And that's the reality not only in college football, but that's the reality in America today. And I don't know that we're ever going to get back to that. Dale, realignment still is is ongoing. There's a lot of questions about you know what the conferences even look like in a, in a couple more years and, yeah. and how far away the Big Ten and the SEC are out in front. But what did you think of all these years later removed from the death penalty, seeing a little crack of light, SMU going all in and getting themselves an invite to the ACC? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not crazy about the the, the realignment prospects. I, I I really do like the regional matchups a great deal better. As, as I said, to Aikman in that interview, you, you're really looking forward to that that UCLA Maryland football game. I mean, that'll that'll be big. I mean, and, you know, kids are. I mean, kids, you got kids flying all over. You're know, going from two, three different time zones, and I, I still like to think there's something to be said for the student athlete. But I think that's the next step. I think we have to. I think we have to completely give up on the student athlete. And realignment is one of the reasons for that. I never went to college, but I've had so many people tell me that it's, it's, it's actually somewhat difficult to do it properly and to maintain a decent grade point. And now you're telling me these kids with all the, the, the stress and time and, and travel that they have to do, that they're really student athletes? No, no, I don't think many of them are. And I think that's where eventually we're going to be. It's going to be minor league sports. And here's the bottom line. College football and college basketball is going to become a minor league sport. And the reality is, certainly in Texas, people don't like minor league sports. They like they like the top of the line professional sports. College works because you, you, you put that name of the school on it and you sell this idea that, hey, here's a kid going to class and he's, he's playing for good old Baylor. And he's playing for good old Texas. He's playing for Oklahoma. But once we go that next step, that no, no, they're playing for Baylor today, but they're going to transfer to Texas tomorrow. Then they're going to go to Texas Tech, and then they're going to go to Nebraska. Well, they won't go to Nebraska. Nobody goes to Nebraska anymore. Uh, but, but they're going to they're going to make it into a minor league sport. And, then, and here's my argument about this: the golfers, David, to put it back into our area, the golfers on the well, I don't even know what they call the tour now, the Corn Ferry Tour. 
the golfers on the Corn Ferry Tour are unbelievable. I mean, you know how great those golfers are. But nobody cares. Nobody cares because they're not on the PGA Tour. The minor league baseball players in Frisco are fabulous athletes. They are fabulous athletes. But nobody cares because they got the Rangers right down the road. And I think that's what's going to happen to college football someday. Maybe not, maybe not as much in my lifetime. But if they don't find a compromise, and I really do hold out hope that they will, if they, if they somehow succeed, the athletes I'm talking about, into making it a paid professional sport, they're going to be the second level. They're going to be like the old USFL and all these spring leagues that were always popping up around the country. Nobody cares about those because they're not the best. They're not the best. They're great athletes. I mean, that running back for the USFL or, or whatever these leagues are called nowadays, tremendous athlete. But once they decide that they're just a minor league player, which they will become, I think that I think the interest will fall off as well. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think it will. What was a bigger day for you as far as that? You're obviously, the SMU, that was – that was the end of it. That's when they were actually given the death penalty. Or yeah. two years later, when Landry is fired by Jerry and Jimmy Johnson's in town having dinner at wherever it was, me Casino or whatever, yeah. Mia's or whatever it was, yeah. Mia's, yeah, Mia's, yeah. Well, I would also throw the third one in there. When people ask this question of me a lot, especially now that I'm retired, there's three days that as long as I can remember anything, I will remember this. And not necessarily in any particular order, but two of the ones you mentioned, and I would throw the Michael Sam commentary uh, in 2014 into that as well. But but the day that SMU got the death penalty, um, the the day that Tom Landry was fired, which I just I, I, mean, I couldn't believe. There's a story there. Here's another little story that nobody really knows about. That Thursday night when Scott Murray and Channel Five broke the story that. Uh, Tom Landry uh, was going to be fired. Jerry Jones, I mean, that Jerry Jones was buying the Dallas Cowboys and, and, and all the rest of it. I was giving a speech uh, at, a, at a big banquet in Dallas. And Channel 8 kept having somebody run messages up to me like, hey, come on, you got to get back to the station right now. And I, I just tell them, yeah, tell them I'll call them later. And I continued with my speech. They, they did like three times. Well, on the one hand, I got a whole bunch of people saying after the fact that was so cool that, that you just told Channel 8, you blew them off. You blew them off because I was committed to giving this speech to this banquet. Well, I get back to the station. All hell's breaking loose, obviously, because Channel 5 is going to report. It's like 930. The Channel 5 is about to report that the Cowboys have been sold to Jerry Jones. I don't think I ever told you this, David. I called Tech Stramp. And I'll clean this up for the benefit of your radio listeners, as you know, Tex. And I said to him, is this true? And he said, our young friend in Fort Worth has just made the single biggest mistake of his life. He has ended his career. And I said, well, I, I said, Tex, I, I, I can't believe that you don't know about the sale. But at the same time, I, I can't believe that Channel 5 is, is that wrong. I mean, they're... They're, they're going to put a story out that is that wrong. So I went back into the newsroom. Carolyn Fessler was the executive producer. And I said, I got nothing. And she's, what do you mean? I said, Tex Tram says it's not true. And she says, go with that. I said, no, I'm not going to go with that. 
said, well, you have to. And I said, I'm not going to do it because I don't know how Tex doesn't know, but I, I, I know that he's telling me the truth from his perspective at that point. And I can't believe that Scott Murray is that wrong. So I said, I, I, I've got nothing. I'm not going to do anything. Well, Kevin McCarthy was on Channel 4, the CBS affiliate, and he reported that Scott Murray was dead wrong and there was no truth to it. As I said to Ed Bark in the Dallas Morning News the next day, well, I didn't win last night, but I ran second because I sure as hell didn't finish third like McCarthy. (laughs) (laughs) And by by Friday night, we owned the story. And by Friday night, Channel 8, uh, we owned the story. But Tex Schramm didn't know. And I, I mean, I believe in my heart, he absolutely did not know. But I just couldn't believe the sky was wrong. And, and then, you know, then immediately that Friday, we find out that, well, Landry's going to be gone. And I'm like, my whole world is cratering. I mean, I've been a Landry fan from the time I was 12 years old in, in Logan, Iowa, watching the Dallas Cowboys all the way through the 60s. And Tom Landry was always there, always. And, and you know, this is at a point in my life, I'm like 40 years old at that point. You know, now, I mean, my whole life has changed. The SMU story put me on the map. The Tom Landry story shook me to my soul that, oh, there really is no permanence in life. And then, quite frankly, the Michael Sam commentary put me on the national map. And those three days um, uh, are seared into my brain. And I can, as you well know, because you've been with me on occasion, I can go detail by detail by detail about what happened on those days. While I can't really remember what my wife's birthday is. I know it's sometime in November, but I'm not sure what day it is. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I, I think we had a party for her two years ago, but I have no idea where. You know, and uh, But those those three days, um, I, you know, I mean, it, it's just, uh, it's, it's amazing how that happens. But the, the Jones hiring the Cowboys, firing Landry, as you mentioned before, I went on this long tirade of mine. Uh, man, what a shocking day that was. Just an absolute shocking day. All right, Dale, if I, if I bought the Cowboys from Jerry tomorrow, and I've, I've always thought about it, uh, you know, it's just not something I want to do with my money. But if I bought the Cowboys right, from, right, right. from Jerry tomorrow and I put you in charge to fix them, what would the first thing you'd do? Oh, my gosh. The first thing, the first thing I would do would be to hire uh, a John Lynch-type general manager, uh, an Ozzie Newsom-type general manager. I, I still think that's the single biggest problem with that organization by far. They need a football guy, and they've got one uh, in Will McClay. I think Will McClay is a great football guy, but I don't think he has the clout that he needs to have, which then would be one and one A in terms of what I would do, is I would change the culture of that organization so that the players answer to the head coach. Don't even think about coming down the hall and talking to me until you've talked to the head coach. The head coach has complete authority along with the fact that he answers to the general manager and the general manager answers to me as the new owner of the Dallas Cowboys. I've said this forever. David, I know, has heard it a thousand times. Name me a team in any sport that is successful for the long haul, even maybe for the short term, 
when the owner is the face of the franchise? What, who, who would that be? You know, I mean, I don't even it, – it's hard. I mean, obviously, only because of their continued success. I know that Robert Kraft owns the New England Patriots, but he was never the face of that franchise. It was Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. And, yeah, I mean, Robert Kraft's name popped up to it. But when Al Davis was the face of the Raiders, they were horrible. They were horrible. When John Madden and Kenny Stabler was the face of the Raiders, they were great. I couldn't pick Art Rooney, the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, out of a crowd of two. Mm -hmm. It would be a total 50-50 guess. Because it was Bradshaw, it was Chuck Noll, it, it was all their great players, all their great coaches over the years. And I'm, I've said this forever. When you look at an organization where the owner is the face of the franchise, it fails. I think it fails almost every single time, short-term and long-term. There might be a couple of caveats in there that, that, that would slow my argument down, but not many. Well, I mean I, – I, They've had they've had players, you know this, David, they've had players walk right past the head coach's office and go to Jerry to complain about something, and then Jerry tells the head coach we're making a change. That's obscene. That's a somebody there was a guy that tried that at, with me at Channel Eight one time, and he he wasn't there the next twenty four hours. I think you, I know you, I think I know who that might have been. <laughs> yeah. You have to have you have to have in every good organization, you have to have a chain of command. You have to have one. Now, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that the player can't go talk to the owner, but he has to have the permission of the head coach first. As I said to the employee that I've had trouble with, I don't care if you go talk to the news director or the owner or the manager, whichever, but you don't ever do it without talking to me first. And it stopped. I mean, it, it. I had to fire that guy, but I didn't have to fire anybody else. Um, and again, it, it it may sound harsh, but it. You know, you, when the great Marty Haig was there, and I would bump heads with Marty on occasion. I said, "Man, I got to go talk to Dave Lane, who was the greatest general manager in the history of local television." And Dave Lane had a great open door policy, and he would call me at night after a show, all kinds of stuff. But I never never took an issue to Dave Lane without talking to Marty Haig first. And that's absolutely the way it should be. And the Cowboys haven't haven't done that. They they did it when Jimmy was there. Try walking down the hall when Jimmy Johnson was there and see what happens to you. Yeah, and but but once Barry Switzer arrived, it was Jerry Jones as the total face of the franchise and they've never won since. The only comp you would have to him is probably George Steinbrenner, right? Where they've won, yeah. and but George Steinbrenner was always the face of the Yankees, for better or for worse, and he had his great little streak, but ultimately, I think most Yankee fans could have kind of done without him. Oh, I think so, yeah. I, and again, that's always the one. I was waiting to see if you would come up with it. But yeah, Steinbrenner had a window there. He had a window there. Uh but but it was it was chaos and I mean they 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 kick him out of baseball for a couple of years they bring him back I mean it, maybe I'd have to really because I don't pay that close of attention to baseball per se even in, even when I was working and I should have been but I didn't um, but but I, I think I can still break down the Steinbrenner argument if, if I put enough into it I can't do it today 
that, that I mentioned to you, and you mentioned I'm retired now. I don't really care. <laughs> but but I, I I would give you maybe maybe you can give me Steinbrenner. I think quite honestly I could discredit that argument with a little thought. But that's one. Keep going. Yeah. Give me another one. I, I got nothing. Dale, when you did the yeah. Michael Sam commentary. Uh, and a lot of people think it was just about Michael Sam and him being gay and, and, and all of that. But you also, one of the things that was also very much a part of that was the fact that the NFL was hypocritical in who they allowed or allowed in the locker room to play the game. You're talking about, I think, Ray Rice uh, among some others as far as domestic violence and beating women and all right. of that. Am I right? Yep, yep. Yo, absolutely. Yeah, that was... And I don't know if that's good or bad, uh, but yeah, I, I think most people did. I mean, you obviously picked up on it, but that was just it. I, I do support Michael Sam's right uh, to play in the NFL, even if he is you know, openly gay. Uh, but but that was just a, that was just part of it. I mean, I think what really did sell that uh, argument, uh, and again, depending on different groups of people you talk to, but but I think there was on the one hand the argument of thank you for supporting an openly gay man of and by itself. But then I think it also struck a chord with a lot of people. Um, you know, like I said in the commentaries, you know, Lawrence, I think I made a mistake. I think I said Lawrence Phillips was the uh, the fourth player taken. I think he was actually the sixth player taken in the draft. Uh, the former Nebraska running back who beat, beat his girlfriend senseless. Beat her senseless. Um, Osborne suspended him for a few games, brought him back for the uh, the bowl game with Florida, and then he was the sixth player taken in the draft. Uh, Michael Irvin's history, of course, with the drugs, uh, the prostitutes. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the NFL. And there were a lot of players, if you remember at that time, there were a lot of players coming out and openly saying, oh, I, I just wouldn't be comfortable. I wouldn't be comfortable in a locker room with a gay man down the down the, the the bench, but they are comfortable lockering and showering with the guy who beat his wife or girlfriend senseless. They are comfortable with lockering and showering with a guy who's got seven, eight kids that he's not supporting in any fashion. Uh, drugs, drunken driving. I mean, drunken driving that kills a teammate. Oh, please, come on. We're going to honor you. We're going to honor you on the bench during the game. Come on. You're welcome. You're welcome. I mean, it, it, to me, it was obscene. And that's really what kind of drove the commentary. That I was driving home when Sean Hamilton, my producer, came to me and said, I want you to write a commentary about Michael Sam. And I really didn't know what I was going to say. And I'm driving home and listening to, you know, a variety of talk shows. And there was this barrage of, of slime coming out of my radio from all these different players and people talking about how they would not be comfortable. That was the phrase that stuck in my mind that oh, I, I just wouldn't be comfortable. And it's why I used the line that I really thought was going to blow up in my face, but it became one of the most popular lines uh, in the gay community was when I said, I'm not always comfortable when a man tells me he's gay because I don't understand his world, but I do understand that he's part of mine. And I really did think when I wrote that line, I loved it for a lot of different reasons, how it plays off the words, et cetera, et cetera. But I really thought that might blow up in my face from the gay community. And the gay community and, and Ellen DeGeneres uh, in particular looked right at me and said, that might be the best line ever. 
we, we don't expect you to understand. We don't expect you to be totally comfortable. We get it. It's different than what you're accustomed to. We just want you to accept us for the people we are. And that's all I've ever done. I, I that's all I've ever done uh, in any aspect of it. I, uh, I, I don't know why that's so hard for so many people in America today. I really don't. And, um, but thank you for noticing that, David, and thank you for pointing it out because it is one of my my prouder moments that 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 I was trying to say something a little bit more than just the fact that I support a gay man, which I did, but I also wanted to expose the hypocrisy of the NFL. Well, you have time for one more question. One more is it? I'm headed to a poker game. All right. I've uh, already missed the first. I've already missed the first couple of hands, so you probably saved me about eighty-five dollars. <laughs> well, thank you. So. Was there ever a commentary, editorial, or something you wrote that you'd never did or never actually put it on the air that you regret that you should have? Or was there ever a commentary that you wrote that you felt like you probably shouldn't have said it? No, there's never one that I shouldn't have said. Uh, or at least I, 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 in my world, I, I sure. don't have any regrets about anything I said. I, 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 which scares a lot of people, but I, I've had a lot of people, David, over the years that always tell me, oh, I know you don't believe that nonsense. You're just saying that to, to rile up the audience. And I said, well, I hate to, to scare you here, but I believe every word I say. I, I promise you. I'm not Skip Bayless here. I don't just make this up for shock value. Uh, what I say, I absolutely believe. Yeah, say, get, come on with me. Come on now. I absolutely, I absolutely believe what I say. Um, I, I did write a commentary one time. Um, and thank goodness the the, the station the sta- I, I, it was a, it was a horrible commentary. Uh, it was about a little league baseball game, and the commissioner uh, made my grandson uh, his grand my grandson's team forfeit the game because we were there videotaping it, and we were going to provide videos to all the kids. And he kicked us out. Mm. And you remember Arnold? You know you know the great Arnold Payne, my photographer. Yeah, AP. Well. AP gets in a big fight with this guy. I then go over to defend AP. And seriously, I didn't even raise my voice yet. And he just called off the game and made these kids cancel. And so I went back to the station and I wrote this commentary and I blew this guy up sideways. I mean, I, I, they, there, there wasn't enough left for a DNA test when I got done with this guy. <laughs> and this, they called me the next morning. And, uh, and said, uh, uh, yeah, we need to talk about this. And I got very defensive. And I, I, I actually, I hung up. I, I, I just, in the middle of a conversation, like a, like a nine-year-old spoiled kid, I just, I just hang, uh, hung up the phone. And they called me back, of course. They said, Dad, we're not killing the commentary, but you've slandered this guy. You've libeled him. And he's not really a public figure. He's, he's just a little league baseball commissioner. And I said, look, come on in. We'll talk about it. We'll clean it up just a little bit. And, and you can still do it. And, and I did. I swear to you, I started laughing. I said, no, boys, I didn't. This is my boss I'm talking to. I said, thank you for saving me from myself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, was so, it, was so, it was so over the top. And then I got into a big fight. Uh, I had a couple of fights, which was one of the things that led to my retirement. Um, the original deal in my commentaries, David, was it was in writing no one was allowed to change a single word in my commentary unless i libeled or slandered uh anybody which i did to that baseball commissioner and then uh because the opinions are my own well then we had a new general manager come in the last few months i was there 
And every commentary, he threw up a roadblock. Every commentary. Mm. And a very conservative guy, and you might have noticed over the years, I'm not. And it just became this knockdown, drag-out fight to get these commentaries on the air. And I just threw my hands up and said, no, I'm not doing them anymore. I'm done. I'm not going to go through this. And, and yet, everyone that I wanted to get on there did. Um, and the bottom line is, good, bad, or indifferent, um, uh, I have absolutely no regrets about what I said because I believe it in my heart. Um, um, and I knew, I knew going in, that, you know, that, which I've never been, as you well know, David, I, 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 I don't deny the fact that I kind of enjoy the controversy, but I've never shied away from um, worrying about what somebody on Twitter says. I just don't. And it got to the point where Channel 8 did. And they would call me and say, oh, you know, Twitter's just blown up. Oh, yeah. Oh, gee, great. But, and, and I said, okay, well, what do I care? I don't even know where it is. I've never seen, I've never read a Twitter. Uh, uh, I don't know, how do you do it? Do you do it on the phone? Or, I, don't, I have no idea. If you, if you told me, hey, go look at this, Dale, it's on Twitter right now, I would have no idea where to find it. I have no idea. So I, as I said, I said, what, what do I care? I said, I've been listening to this for years. I mean, for decades, Dave. Decades. You know how many... How many people, and go back to your social media comment a moment ago, you know how many people wrote and called me after the SMU story that were just livid? Because, you know, they still are. I mean, they, I ran into a guy at Javier's about three months ago. He wanted to fight. And I'm sitting there going, I don't care. What I said was the truth. I stand by it. If they hate it, so be it. And, and for the most part, the great Marty Haig, the great Dave Lane, so many of the other managers that I worked with, they didn't agree with everything I said. They didn't like everything I said. But they never, ever criticized me or stopped me. And then at the end, they tried to do it. I said, uh, it's time to go. Time to go. Dale, uh, it was great talking to you earlier today. And I'm sorry we haven't had you on much earlier, but uh, it, it popped up on my timeline. I was driving back from Dallas yesterday, and I said, I got to talk to Hanson, Craig and Paul and I both, all of us, uh, appreciate it. And those in the chat room, which you wouldn't know where to find that either, but in the no, chat room, uh, they, on the podcast, they love it, and they've appreciated everything. We appreciate your time. Go win some money. I'm going to try, sir. Thank David, you. it's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it very much. This has been a Rogue Media Network production. Wait.